Today on Personally Speaking, our guest is Billy Keenan. He's written a powerful new book called The Road to Resilience. Stay with us, please. Hello and welcome to Personally Speaking. I'm your host, Monsignor Jim Lasanti, and Billy Keenan joins me now. Billy Keenan was a successful teacher, a veteran, a triathlete, Irish band leader, a husband, and father. A tragic surfing accident changed all of that and left him paralyzed. In his new and powerful book, The Road to Resilience, The Billy Keenan Story, Billy speaks about facing the realization of being paralyzed, finding a way forward despite tremendous adversity and the Catholic faith that has continued to sustain him. Joining me now, I'm so pleased to welcome to Personally Speaking, author and motivational speaker, Billy Keenan. Billy Keenan is our guest. He has a wonderful book called The Road to Resilience. We'll be talking about that and Billy's journey. Billy, thanks for coming on our program. Great to be with you, Monsignor. Thanks for having me. Billy, you know, the way I found you was through a a wonderful parishioner of mine who was a, a legend in the music business, good old Andy Cooney. How are you and Andy connected? Well, my goodness, I go back to 1986 with Andy. He had just signed on with Patty Noonan, and oh. the first record they recorded together. My dad was also an accordion player and step dancer, besides being an NYPD detective. Dad got the uh, got the album, and I started listening to it, and I heard the Irish Wedding song. But the song that I mentioned to Andy was, um, oh, what was it called? Um uh, there, there was a great ballad that he recorded. And 1986, Andy and I are backstage at the St. Barnabas March concert. I was getting ready to go on with the band that I was attached to. And Andy went on as a solo and tore the house down. And we got talking. That was 1986. I was a sophomore at Fordham. So, um, yeah, we go way, way back. Well, he thinks the world of you, Billy, and he, he thought that it was important that our listeners and watchers hear your story. And uh, even though I had done an introduction on some of what's in the book and in your life, uh, for those who have just tuned in, I want to share with you a quote from Billy because it kind of sets the stage for where this accident led. And Billy says, uh, he heard the word paralyzed. You try to put yourself in my place. I heard that word paralyzed just a moment before the accident. I had everything. I was the paratrooper, the musician, the lover, the batting practice pitcher, the swim coach, the triathlete, the surfer, the teacher. Now I had nothing apart from the sound of the ventilator kicking into life and filling my lungs with air. Bill, I got to ask you, when when I walk by someone who has any kind of special challenge, and maybe it's just my nature, but I have a tendency to say, I wonder how well or how poorly I would handle that. Did you in your whole life ever imagine how you, Billy, might have handled the challenge that you now face? You know, the, the, just as you were speaking, I was flashing back with the question to um, my, my teaching days at North Rockland High School. And there was a young man who was wheelchair bound, part of the special ed program. And for, this, for one reason or another, every time at fifth period, I would go to the restroom before I taught sixth period and I would pass this boy in a wheelchair, and every time I got five feet past him, I would bless myself, 
and say, there but for the grace of God. And to tell you the truth, the day that this would happen to me never occurred to me. And I never thought, how, how would it be? It just seemed inconceivable to think about it because I had built myself up through the, the constant pursuit of deliberate dis discomfort, you know, whether it was in the military or afterwards my life as a, as a triathlete and surfer. I had built myself up to tremendous physical fitness and endurance, and I kind of felt almost bulletproof. And September 14th proved that I was not. Uh, one, one of the people you and I, Billy, have in common uh, is uh, Stephen McDonald, um, who has gone through, went through so much of what you've gone through. Tell me about the connection there. How did you guys get to be the friends that you are and were? Well, I, I tell you, I first encountered Stephen, although I, I knew about him for years because of my dad being on the NYPD and everybody, almost all the Catholics throughout the tri-state area came to know of Stephen in one yeah. way or another. But right. my, my first year of teaching was 1996 at Albertus Magnus High School, my alma mater. And during that year, Stephen came to speak to the entire student body. And mm -hmm. since I had a band, I was I was the music minister for the school in addition to teaching ninth to 10th grade history. So I had to mic Stephen up. So physically, terms of proximity, I got very close to him and we just had a, a couple of just quick conversation back and forth between the two of us and nothing more. And then I had my accident and six weeks into my recovery. I was about, I, I was in the pit of despair, just that abyss of self-pity, of grief for the man that I had lost it was about as low as it could go. Yeah. And I was in the hospital, and a man walked in one day and said, Billy, my name is Dennis Lynch. You taught my daughter at Albertus. He said, he took out his iPhone. And he said, I've got Stephen McDonald on the phone, and he wants to talk to you. And I just stopped everything. Yeah. And it was at a time of day where I didn't have my speaking valve in because I was straight and invented as well at the time, so I couldn't speak. So Stephen just spoke to me for about eight minutes. And it, it was a conversation that changed everything for me. And he said, Billy, there's only one reason that you survived. God has a plan for you. It's the only reason you're still here. They said, Billy, when your rehab is over, when you're stronger, you're going to come back and contribute in a significant way. And don't ever forget that in the end, there will be life. There will be life. There will be life. And that was it. Just a quick conversation. And the next day, complete change. Now, I had been struggling sleeping for the first six weeks after my injury. They were giving me medication to help me sleep. My grief was so profound that I was awake all night long. I tried to pray, and my prayers were, were very very much, very much like our Savior in the Garden of Gethsemane. Mm. Please let this cup pass from me. But as our Savior said, let, let it be your will, not mine. I was not there, Monsignor. I was so far from that. But after that conversation with Stephen, I woke up the next day. 
I said to my speech therapist, Jacqueline, I'm going back to teach. She said, that's fabulous, Billy. Yeah. You just can't breathe. Ah, oh. I, can, I can see where this would be a problem. And my, my physicians, the medical team, never thought that I'd be able to wing myself off the vent. But we worked doggedly for four months, and a miracle happened. I got off the vent, and I was breathing independently. And that was the first step on my road back to teaching. And really, the impetus, the catalyst for that moment came in a small conversation with Stephen. And you know what? We never, we never made contact. And then in January of 17, he passed. Mm-hmm. And in May of 18, that same man, Dennis Lynch, got me together with Patty Ann. Mm-hmm. And we became very dear friends. And uh, I, I, I always say to people, Stephen is a living saint. He was a living saint. But there would have been no Stephen without Patty Ann. Yeah. Well, that's a perfect segue, Billy, because I was going to say in pre-Cana, I say to all the kids, you know, you're you're physically fit and beautiful and young now. But who knows where any of our lives will lead. And I say the best example of a marriage that truly was unconditional love of Patty Ann McDonald and Stephen. They had basically one year of marriage before he was paralyzed. And and yet I have never met two people who loved each other for the rest of his life like they loved each other. You, you didn't you didn't have that kind of relationship with your wife. And I, I, I guess that's that's significant in that you were disappointed, betrayed, let down, abused in many ways. Um I have to ask you, going back in time, because I, I presume, but I don't know, that Stephen must have seen something in Patty Ann when he was courting her that made him say, this one is the real deal. When you look back, not on the marriage, but on the time when you two were dating, you and your wife, did, did you see the qualities you thought were there but weren't, or did she change? Well, I, I was quite candid about it in the memoir, and I think, you know, what one of the great achievements and one of the things that I feel most at peace with is that in, in, in many instances, I'm not the hero of the seeker. You know, I, I'm very open about, Hey, I, I made a big mistake here and I paid dearly for it. Yeah. Um, and this is something that I talked about with my confessor, a wonderful Catholic priest, Father Rob McKeown. He's from my parish here in West Nyack. St. Francis of Assisi. And, um, you know, I, I told him straight up, you know, Father, this relationship was conceived in sin. And I rushed into an engagement. And in, in the book, Monsignor, there are four separate times where I attempt to break it off. Wow. I knew in my heart, in my gut, and, and that gut, Father Rob always tells me, Billy, that was the Holy Spirit telling you, blowing against your sails, saying, stop, this is yeah. dangerous. And you know what? I got manipulated terribly, and I went through with it, even though all the signs were pointing to a problematic engagement. And a problematic engagement is only going to give way to a difficult marriage. And the years prior to my injury mm-hmm. were full of difficulty. And it got so bad in such a painful state that by the summer of 2010, I pleaded with my wife to attend counseling. And I set it up with a a Catholic couples counselor because I wanted so much for God to be part of the healing, to be part of the coming back together. 
and moving forward together. And my wife refused to attend. So I went for three sessions by myself. And then I really came to know true loneliness. And I, I soldiered on for the good and the safety and security of my two beautiful sons. Mm. And then, you know, afterwards, after the accident and the betrayal and the abuse and neglect, as I stepped back from it all, it kind of makes sense in a, in a very sad, twisted way. But wasn't it all predictable? Because you, sh- you showed me what you were. Billy, you've used a few times in this interview and in the book, you talk about going through the process of grief. And I'm intrigued, and I I think our listeners probably would find it interesting to uh, use that word. Is grief the same as depression, or is it entirely different? Well, I mean, grief, grief, as Kubler-Ross lays out for us, depression is certainly part of it. And um, boy, did I get there. I there, there were days early on in my recovery when all I could do was cry. Mm. All I could do. And I, I would lose a day of therapy sitting in a darkened room at Helen Hayes Hospital, just bawling my eyes out. Yeah. And But I, I got past that. And I think that this is something that could kind of be generalized and I can impart to your audience. It's mm. that the goal, after Stephen's conversation, that goal of teaching, and the purpose, with that brought purpose back to my life. Because I laid out a paradigm for myself, my senior, and it was this. If I can breathe, I can talk. Right. If I can talk, I can teach. If I can teach my life, even in this wheelchair, my life will have purpose. Yes. My life will have meaning. I'll be a provider once again for my wife and children. And I'll be a person not to be discarded. And better, best of all, I will show my show my kids, my two sons, Patrick and Karen, that this is how a man carries himself, even in the midst of withering adversity. And that that was kind of you know that was the paradigm shift, and that was where I moved to. So I, I was able to get out of that depression fairly quickly. I got to ask you those two beautiful Italian names you chose for your son. Ah, <laughs> right. <laughs> let, yeah. let me let me ask you because our, our folks might not know that. Billy was also someone active in uh, Irish music himself. Uh, Take me back a little bit to your own upbringing as Irish-American. How important is the Irish culture to you, Billy? Oh, my goodness. Well, um, both my mom and dad are children of Irish immigrants. Okay. Um, Dad's parents are both from the county Leitrim, and my mother's both parents were from the county cabin. And uh, they, they grew up in that incredible time in the Bronx. And it, it's it's in that beautiful song when New York was Irish. Um, and matter of fact, the guy who wrote that song, a man named Jesse Winch, my parents, my, my dad lived on the first floor with his nine siblings and his parents. They lived on the first floor apartment and the Winches lived on the third floor. So my dad would hear flutes and fiddles and oh, just incredible accordions and music sessions happening in the Bronx on the warm summer nights. And uh, when when I begged my dad for an instrument, they gave me a tin whistle at the age of eight. And I got my first tune and a whole world opened up for me. And within about a month, 
I was listening to the stereo and learning jigs and reels just by ear. Then I graduated to the flute and the guitar. And at the age of 14, the electric bass guitar, because my brother and I formed a band with a fellow named John McCarthy, a drummer from down the road. And uh, I was playing gigs. And then I learned piano in my 20s. I got hired by a show band, sophomore year at Fordham. I was playing weddings and festivals and parties and dinner dances. And it was just, it was, it was a great part of my life. And when I graduated Fordham, I went on active duty in the Army. I was commissioned out of Fordham as a second lieutenant through the ROTC program. Okay. The guitar came with me everywhere I went. And I had a, kind of a funny story when senior St. Patrick's Day of 1992, I found myself in Honduras. I volunteered for a six-month tour of duty in the Republic of Honduras, and I played in front of about 300 people with myself, my tin whistle, the guitar, and a microphone, and 300 soldiers. So the music came with me everywhere I went. Great <laughs> companion, thank God. I, I thank God that I had it, and I think yeah. I used the gift that he gave me to bring joy. You know, And I think that chapter of my life was a really, truly beautiful one. You know, we, we talked a little bit before about forgiveness, but I want to come back to it in a circuitous way, Billy. Um, I have a great friend, Father Jack Maloney, and he taught me this phrase a long time ago, which is an Irishism, as I call it. Uh, I'm James Patrick Lasanti, so I've got half Irish in my background. And the, the, the phrase is, many, is a man, many a man has cut a rod to beat himself with, and uh, that we are sometimes our worst critics you look back to the accident, you're out surfing, a choice that you made, the accident happens and it changes your life. I would think one of the toughest things we can do for ourselves in that circumstance is not get into the blame game of, I made this choice, it was a disastrous choice, the accident happened, and beat myself up, hit myself with that rod for the rest of my life. How did you get past beating up Billy? Mm, I'll tell you, the truth is I'm still grappling with it. But uh, it, it's very different for me, though. The thing that I have trouble that I have trouble forgiving myself for, as I read the pages of the Road to Resilience, mm. was not being able to stop the marriage from happening. Four times, with deliberate intention, I tried to break it off, yeah. and was brought back into it through the crudest of manipulations. One that was used on me time and time again, both before the marriage and afterwards, to get what she wanted. And I saw it, but didn't recognize it. And and that 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 last chance that I had to save this amazing body, as it was, the surfer and triathlete, came in 2010 when she refused to go to counseling. Mm. Then and there. That was the moment to, with perfect justification, to walk away from the marriage and say, you know what? I did everything in my power to bring about healing and for my own health, to be a really, truly great father to my sons. I need to find happiness and peace. And it's not within this marriage, but I stayed and I only had three years left to live. And that's, that's the part. I don't beat myself up for the choice of surfing. Right. It's that I should have left because one of the things when my wife realized how much I loved surfing, mm -hmm. it was that that she attacked and would find ways 
to keep me from the ocean. I would have a day of surfing planned. And I would take a, take a day off from work, a personal day from school. And the day of, I'd be halfway out the door. And she would come up with a reason why I couldn't go or why I had to cut it short. And the cruelest thing that you can do to a surfer is to keep him from the ocean. Mm. And that's what she did. And that made me covet that day, September 14th of 2014. That was the day of the Jersey Shore Irish Festival. And I managed to find a gig playing with Celtic Cross, a great band from New Jersey. They were headlining the festival at 4 p.m. I called them up and said, hey, do you mind if I sit in on your set? Absolutely, Billy, bring the instruments. We'd love to have you. So I packed up and I paddled out that day at noon, just a few hundred yards from the festival stage. I paddled out at noon and at 1.30, I was gone. I never made it. But my wife's constantly taking the ocean away from me made me look at that day, September 14th. Mm. I was owed that day. That was a makeup day. The day that was going to be about me getting back the things that I loved, the things that she had taken from me. And that was the day that I died. Yeah. So something very spiritual and biblical about it. And the, the meaning of which, like I said, I still grapple with it. But the hard part is forgiving myself for not, for not making the move to save my own life when I had the opportunity and the justification. Billy Keenan, for those who don't know, not is just the author of The Road to Resilience, but he's also out there offering motivational speakers to help other people. And uh, he, he speaks wonderfully, as you can tell, but he also uh, speaks from the heart. B Billy, what's your hope with your talks and what kind of folks out there might benefit from having you be a motivational speaker for their group? Uh, wow. You know, I, in, in the last six years, my speaking life, I started at the high school that I taught at with a room of 20 kids, 20 seniors in high school. And within about two years, I had spoken at West Point, the U.S. Military Academy, mm. St. John's, my alma mater, Fordham University. And uh, I've done high schools and colleges, athletic teams uh, all throughout the tri-state. I've done a few corporate meetings. And, mm. uh, you know, my message, I think, resonates with anybody at any phase of their life because and but to young people where so much my mission so much my ministry focuses on i talk about resilience mm -hmm. as being a bank account and the way to get resilience is to fill up that bank account but how do you make deposits in the account of resilience and the way you do it and i give them the method it's through a thing called deliberate discomfort a while back, I read a book by a special forces warrior named Jason Van Camp, a true war hero, hero. And he said that, and the book he wrote is called Deliberate Discomfort, How to Become Comfortable Being Uncomfortable. And I realized, wow, this is everything that I've done in my life. You know, I didn't have to go in the army, but I did. I didn't have to go to airborne school and become a paratrooper. I didn't have to go to Honduras. So all of these things, I've been racking up deposits in the bank account of resilience. And I started making withdrawals on senior. Yeah. The day I opened my eyes after a two week medically induced coma and began my recovery. 
I started making withdrawals. So I encourage the people I speak to, if you're feeling good, start making deposits in the bank account of resilience. Challenge yourself relentlessly and with joy in your heart. And when something goes wrong, if the world goes completely sideways, you'll have a full bank account of resilience to draw on. And resilience is nothing more than the ability to adapt to or overcome trauma, adversity, and major life changes. And that's the road to resilience. And that's the message that I've been bringing out for six years and God willing for another city. Billy, Billy Keenan uh, shared with us earlier in this interview the time he walked by the uh, student who was especially challenged and uh, prayed there, but for the grace of God go I. And the truth is, and I hope our listeners and watchers uh, can repeat the same prayer, that any one of us, first of all, all of us are disabled in one way or another. Uh, it might be emotional, might be physical, might be spiritual, but uh, what would my response be? And could I find, as Billy has written, the road to resilience? I, I want to thank Billy Keenan for being with us. I want to thank uh, him for the directness and the honesty of his testimony. Uh, this is not a sugar-coated interview in that Billy says it's it's life has not been easy and and the road is bumpy and and despair and sometimes grieving are a big part of the road back. But that one man, namely Stephen McDonald, gave him the first uh, life preserver of hope and that we can do that for each other too by being there for each other. Billy, you've already touched thousands of lives and I think you're going to use the rest of your life to do the same Thank you for your witness in the book. Thank you for the motivational speeches. Thank you for keeping on, keeping on, and uh, so grateful for having you on Personally Speaking. But Senior, thank you so much for having me. And I have to tell you, um, of all the things that I lost, and I lost so much, but the one that I got back was my faith. Uh, Summer 2015, I went from being a call and answer Catholic to being a Roman Catholic Christian. And it all happened at the Marian Shrine, saying the rosary, and the chaplet of divine mercy. Wow. I looked up okay. at, at the crucifix, saw the wound in his side, fixated on it, and found tears coming down my cheeks. Mm. And at that moment, I was reborn a Christian. So of all the things I've lost, I've gotten back my faith, and I really joined Jesus Christ, and I found a brother in my suffering, and that has been the greatest gift of all. So I thank you so much, mm. Monsignor, for everything you do to be an evangelizer and to carry the word of our Savior out to so many of your viewers and listeners. And it's just been a gift to be with you. Thank you. Billy, thank you so much. Billy Keenan, thank you for being our guest. As we end today's program, I thank you for being with us. If you need to reach me, you can get me at personallyspeakingpodcast at gmail.com. If you want to not just listen to this program, you can also see it on YouTube by going to Personally Speaking with Monsignor Jim Losanti. Uh, if you do, please hit like and subscribe. We're also on Facebook at Personally Speaking with Monsignor Jim Lasanti, and now we're on Instagram at Personally Speaking Podcast. I'm privileged to serve as host and executive producer Personally Speaking. Our producer is Lisa Jandovitz. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll be with you again next time on Personally Speaking.